As I'm sure you are well aware, one of the largest shoe companies today, shoe and apparel companies today, if not the largest, is the Nike Corporation. In a short amount of time, they have become a multi-billion dollar business. In fact, some of you probably have contributed to their wealth by purchasing their shoes or apparel for yourself or for your children. I've often wondered through the years, ever since the company uh, was started and began to get popular, I've wondered how many people who own Nike shoes or Nike shirts or Nike sweats or whatever it happens to be, I've wondered how many actually know what the name of their product means. My guess is that less than half of the people who own Nike shoes or Nike sweats or whatever it is actually know what the name means. The word Nike is actually a Greek word. The Greek noun is nike, and the verb is nikao. The the noun means victory, and the verb means to win, or to overcome, or to conquer. This is the Greek word Paul uses in Romans 8.37 when he says, In all of these things, and you remember he lists a number of, of difficult trying circumstances, He says, in all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loves us. Literally in Greek, huper nike, super Nikes. This is the Greek word John uses in 1 John 5, 4, when he says, everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. So what those verses tell us, and not only those verses, but others, is that as believers in Jesus Christ, We are conquerors. We are overcomers. Ultimately, we are winners because we will win. Our team, our side, that is those who belong to the Lord Jesus Christ, will win. We are spiritual Nikes. But we aren't the first of God's people to be conquerors because... The Old Testament book of Joshua, the book in Hebrew Scripture called Joshua, records for us the conquering of the promised land by the people of Israel. That's the book we want to survey in this study, so let's turn there together. Past the first five books of Hebrew Scripture, those five called the Pentateuch or the Torah or the Law, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and then the next book in Hebrew Scripture is Joshua. Now, as we come to the book of Joshua, I need to tell the story of what has already happened for those who don't know or who have forgotten, or this book won't make any sense at all. All the way back in Genesis chapter 12, almost 700 years before the time of Joshua, God chose a man named Abraham. Originally, you know his name was Abram, changed to Abraham. He was chosen to be the father of the nation in which and through which God would work. Even though Abraham and his wife Sarah were childless, God promised that out of them would come a great nation. In fact, God's covenant with Abraham involved three components. Descendants, land, and blessings. Those are the three key components of the Abrahamic covenant. Land, descendants, blessings. God promised Abraham that he would have many descendants, 
God promised that those descendants would inherit a special land and that they would be a source of blessing for the whole world. The descendants, of course, were and are the Jewish people. The land was the land of Canaan. And two of the greatest blessings God has given the world through the Jewish people are, one, the fact that the Word of God came through the Jewish nation. Just about every book of Scripture was written by a Jewish person with the possible, and I, and I stress the word possible, exception of Luke and Acts. So, the two of the greatest blessings God has given the, the world through the Jewish people are the fact the Word of God came through the Jewish nation and the Son of God came through the Jewish nation. Jesus was a Jewish man. That was a part of the covenant God made with Abraham. And God made this an unconditional covenant. He put Abraham to sleep so that he himself alone, God, could pass through those uh, animal pieces, the sacrifice that was set up by Abraham. And this was God's way of saying he would fulfill this covenant regardless of the faithfulness of Abraham and his descendants. Well, you probably know the story. Abraham and Sarah finally had a son, miraculously. They named him Isaac. Isaac had two sons named Jacob and Esau. Jacob's line would be the chosen line, and eventually God changed Jacob's name to Israel. Israel had 12 sons who were the heads of what became known as the 12 tribes of Israel. One of the sons was named Joseph, and he was sold into Egypt by his brothers who hated him because their dad favored him. Through a series of God-ordained circumstances, Joseph ended up becoming second in command in all the land of Egypt. When a severe famine hit that part of the world, Joseph's family ended up down in Egypt and the family was reunited. They numbered approximately 70 when they went down into Egypt, but there in Egypt, over a period of about 400 years, the tiny nation grew until they numbered around two and a half million strong. And God had not forgotten his promise to Abraham. It was time to move the nation out on their own and into the promised land. <clears throat> so God chose Moses to be the one to lead the Israelites out of bondage. After many confrontations with the Pharaoh of Egypt, God won the battle and Moses led the people out into the wilderness toward their promised land. Along the way, God stopped the people at Mount Sinai to give them his instructions, his precepts, his laws. Then the nation moved on. As they went along in their journey, they complained and they griped and they murmured, for which God was very displeased. So it wasn't a smooth journey toward their new land, but eventually they stood on the threshold and they were ready to enter this land God had promised to them. So Moses sent out 12 spies to spy out the land. When they returned, all but two of them told the people that there was no way they were going to be able to capture the land because the inhabitants were too powerful. Remember now, God had already said that he would give the land to them. But the people believed the 10 unbelieving spies instead of the two. As a result, God judged the nation by forcing them to wander around in the wilderness for 40 years until the entire generation died off. 
And that is exactly what happened. Their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. So many deaths, so many burials that a large part of every day would have been burying people who died. Then a new generation came along. Now it was time again to take the land God had given them. So Moses passed the mantle of leadership to one of the two spies who had tried to get the people to believe, obey, and follow God into the land 40 years earlier. His name was Joshua, and that brings us to the book that bears his name. The book of Joshua is about the conquering and the inhabiting of the promised land of Canaan. This book breaks down into two even parts. The first 12 chapters are about conquering the land. The next 12 chapters are about inhabiting the land. The action part of the book is the first 12 chapters. There were three military campaigns involving more than 30 enemy armies. It took seven years to do it, but eventually Joshua and the people of Israel conquered the land of Canaan, which God had promised to them. First, they conquered central Canaan. Then they conquered southern Canaan. Then they conquered northern Canaan. Let me pause at this point to address an issue that I know some of you are wondering about and maybe even struggling with as I'm speaking right now. When we hear of Joshua and his armies conquering the land of Canaan, it's easy to say, hey, 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 wait a minute. Wait a minute. What about the people who already live there? This doesn't sound quite fair to me. This doesn't sound right. I think that deserves an answer. Why did God command Joshua and his armies to destroy and wipe out the Canaanites? We have an answer to that, but let me just pause to say this. Even if we did not have an answer to that, it's right. Whatever God says is right, whether we have all the information or not. But in this case, we have the information. The answer is found in history and specifically in some documents called the Ras Shamra Tablets. The Canaanite civilization, because of its religion, was one of the most vile and wicked and brutal societies ever to exist. The Canaanite religion prescribed prostitution of both sexes. Prescribed it mandated prostitution of both sexes. It prescribed infant sacrifice. It was a heinous religious system and thus a heinous religious society. That is why, at least part of the reason why, God commanded the Israelites to exterminate the inhabitants of the land of Canaan. Let me pause right here to bring in some application for us to consider. I, I mentioned this just a moment ago. I said it, but I want to elaborate. Whenever, Beloved, whenever God says to do something or not to do something, it is right. It's always right. We, we may not always understand why, but it is right. As you well know, if you've read your Bible, there are several things like this in Hebrew Scripture or the Old Testament. We read that God told the people to do such and such or not to do such and such. And we scratch our heads wondering why in the world God would give a commandment like that. Sometimes we 
discover the answer, and many times we don't. Maybe in time, with more archaeological discoveries, more historical discoveries. Maybe in time, we'll have more answers. Maybe almost all answers. But we may not always know all the whys, but again I stress what God says is right. You really get in trouble when you begin to think you know more than God or you are smarter than God and therefore you question the rightness of what God has said. There are people like that, you know. There are people who see themselves as scholars and therefore they believe they have the right to sit in judgment on the Word of God. If it doesn't make sense to them, if they don't have all of their questions answered, they say it's wrong. This is, this is uh, unacceptable. They think they have the right to take issue with various things God has commanded down through the centuries as they are recorded in the Word of God. How utterly foolish and ridiculous. Romans 11.34 says, For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has become his counselor? The answer is obviously no one. No one can be God's counselor. No one can say, God, you need, to, you need to think about some things you didn't think about. Let me give you some information you're not aware of. That's blasphemous. Whatever God does is right. Whatever God says is right, whether we understand it or not. So when God told Joshua and his army to exterminate the inhabitants of Canaan, that was right. That brings us to Joshua chapter 1. Notice how this book opens. Joshua chapter 1, the first couple verses, tell us this. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, it came to pass that the Lord spoke to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, saying, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, to the land which I am giving to them, the children of Israel. The reason the Lord told them to go over the Jordan is because at this point they were camped in the plains of Moab on the east side of the Jordan River. If you can picture a map of Israel in your mind, most of the land is on the west side of the Jordan. West side of the Jordan River between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean Sea. Of the twelve tribes, only two and a half would settle on the east side of the Jordan. The others would all be on the west side of the Jordan. But at this point, Joshua and all the people are camped in the plains of Moab on the east side of the Jordan. So God says, get ready to go over the Jordan to conquer the land. Verse 3, Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon I have given you, as I said to Moses, from the wilderness and this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites and to the great sea toward the going down of the sun shall be your territory. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you nor forsake you. Be strong and of good courage. For to this people you shall divide as an inheritance the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous. 
that you may observe to do according to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may prosper wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate in it day and night, that you may observe to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and of good courage. Do not be afraid, nor be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Great words of encouragement. And I hope we see the application in these words for us. If we want to seek, uh, succeed in doing the will of God for our lives, then we too need to know the Word of God, meditate on the Word of God, and do the Word of God, as God said to Joshua here. In John 15, Jesus said that to be fruitful, we must abide in Him and his words must abide in us. That's, that's basically the same thought we see right here in these words we just read. To be fruitful in life, it is necessary to know the Word of God, meditate on the Word of God, and do the Word of God. That's what the Lord is telling Joshua. Verse 10, Then Joshua commanded the officers of the people, saying, Pass through the camp and command the people, saying, Prepare provisions for yourselves, for within three days you will cross over this Jordan to go in to possess the land which the Lord your God is giving you to possess. Now remember, the old generation faulted at this point because they refused to believe God and instead they murmured against God's leaders, Moses and Aaron. But notice the response of this new generation. Down in verse 16, it appears that they learned the lesson because in verse 16 they answered Joshua saying, All that you command us we will do, and wherever you send us we will go. Just as we heeded Moses in all things, so we will heed you. Only the Lord your God be with you as he was with Moses. Whoever rebels against your command and does not heed your words in all that you command him shall be put to death. Only be strong and of good courage. That's a great attitude. When leaders, godly leaders that get that kind of support and encouragement, then God's work goes smoothly. And by the way, this, this isn't just an Old Testament concept, because the New Testament also commands his people, God also commands his people in the New Testament to respond properly to their spiritual leaders. Hebrews 13, 17 says, Obey those who rule over you and be submissive, for they watch out for your souls as those who must give an account. Let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. Boy, how true that is. When spiritual leaders can lead with joy, it is so much better for the body of Christ. But when spiritual leaders are forced to lead in grief, then they aren't nearly as productive and the body suffers as a result. The book of Joshua is a vivid illustration of the right kind of working relationship. He is ready to lead and the people are behind him wholeheartedly. So that brings us to chapter 2. Verse 1 says, Now Joshua the son of Nun sent out two men from Acacia Grove to spy secretly, saying, Go view the land, especially Jericho. We'll come back to why especially Jericho in just a moment. So they went, came to the house of a harlot named Rahab, and lodged there. And it was told the king of Jericho, saying, Behold, men have come here tonight from the children of Israel to search out the country. So the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who have entered your house, for they have come to search out all the country. Then the woman took the two men and hid them. So she said, Yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And it happened as the gate was being shut when it was dark that they went out. The men went out. Where the men went, I do not know. Pursue them quickly, for you may overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hidden them 
with the stalks of flax which he had laid in order on the roof. Then the men pursued them by the road to the Jordan, to the fords, and as soon as those who pursued them had gone out, they shut the gate. Now before they lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the, to the men, I know that the Lord, now notice the, the all caps there, L-O-R-D, all capitalized, Yahweh, she's using the personal name of God revealed to his people Israel. I know, I know, she says, Yahweh, your God has given you the land that the terror of you has fallen on us and that all the inhabitants of the land are faint-hearted because of you. For we have heard how Yahweh dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were on the other side of the Jordan, Sihon and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. And as soon as we heard these things, our hearts melted, neither did there remain any more courage in anyone because of you. For the Lord your God, He is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. Now therefore I beg you swear to me by Yahweh since I have shown you kindness that you also will show kindness to my father's house and give me a true token and spare my father my mother my brother my sisters and all that they have and deliver our lives from death so the men answered her our lives for yours if none of you tell this business of ours and it shall be when the Lord has given us the land that we will deal kindly and truly with you this was a sinful woman in the midst of a corrupt people But when she was confronted with the true God of heaven, she believed. She yielded to him and turned to him, and God mercifully spared her life. What a great illustration of God's grace and mercy. Beloved, it doesn't matter how vile or wicked or sinful a person is. If that person will turn to the true God, the God of heaven, there is forgiveness. So the two spies completed their mission and they returned with their report down in verse 23. So the two men returned, descended from the mountain and crossed over and they came to Joshua, the son of Nun, and told him all that had befallen them. And they said to Joshua, Truly the Lord has delivered all the land in our hands for indeed all the inhabitants of the country are faint-hearted because of us. This is in stark contrast to what happened when Moses had sent out the spies. When Moses sent out the spies, 10 of the 12 returned with a report which reflected their lack of faith in what God had promised. But this time the spies delivered the proper report, so it's time to move forward. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and they set out from Acacia Grove and came to the Jordan, he and all the children of Israel, and lodged there before they crossed over. So it was after three days that the officers went through the camp and they commanded the people saying, When you see the ark of the covenant of the, the, the covenant of the Lord your God and the priests, the Levites bearing it, then you shall set out from your place and go after it. But there was a problem they were going to encounter. The Jordan River stood before them and the land. And those of you who have been to Israel and seen the Jordan River, don't think of the Jordan River like that. It wasn't like that back then, not like, like it is now, because the state of Israel draws so much water out of the Sea of Galilee, and when they let it out at the southern point, they only let a little out, and it trickles down through there. And there are places where you can almost jump across the Jordan River, but not in biblical times. It was, it was a full-fledged river, and it was a barrier. Verse 7 tells us, The Lord said to Joshua, 
This day I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all of Israel, that they may know that as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. You shall command the priests who bear the Ark of the Covenant, saying, When you have come up to the edge of the water of the Jordan, you shall stand in the Jordan. So Joshua said to the children of Israel, Come here and hear the words of the Lord your God. And Joshua said, By this you shall know that the living God is among you, and that he will without fail drive out from before you the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Hivites and the Perizzites and the Girgashites and the Amorites and the Jebusites. Behold, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth is crossing over before you into the Jordan. Now therefore take for yourselves twelve men from the tribes of Israel, one from e- man from every tribe, and it shall come to pass as soon as the soles of the feet of the priests who bear the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, shall rest in the waters of the Jordan, that the waters of the Jordan shall be cut off, the waters that come down from upstream, and they shall stand as a heap. So it was when the people set out from their camp to cross over the Jordan with the priests bearing the ark of the covenant before the people. And as those who bore the ark came to the Jordan and the feet of the priests who bore the ark dipped in the edge of the water for the Jordan, notice this editorial note, for the Jordan overflows all its banks during the whole time of harvest. So you have a, a violently rushing river here And verse 16 says, The waters which came down from the upstream stood still and rose in a heap very far away at Adam, the city that is beside Zeratan. So the waters that went down into the sea of the Arabah, the salt sea, failed and were cut off. And the people crossed over opposite Jericho. Then the priests who bore the ark of the covenant of the Lord stood firm on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan. And all Israel crossed on dry ground until all the people had crossed completely over the Jordan. God made it clear he was with his people. And God wanted his people to remember that fact. So in chapter 4, God commanded them to erect a memorial of 12 stones as a commemoration of what God had done for them. By the way, do you do things like this in your life? You should. What I mean is, do you remember the things God has done for you? And do you use physical, tangible reminders? How easily we forget. One of the reasons why I have certain things in my office, pictures, other items hanging or sitting around, is because they are reminders to me of God's faithful, faithfulness to me in the past. And because God has been faithful to bring me to this point, I know he will be faithful in the future. I encourage you to think of practical, tangible, physical ways to remember God's goodness to you. Find things that can serve as a reminder to you because it's so easy to forget what God has done for us. That's the reason, of course, the Lord has given us the Lord's table, the Lord's supper, communion is celebrated. It's a tangible reminder of what the Lord has done. Well, that's what happens in chapter 4 when God commanded the people to erect a memorial of this event before they went any further. There was something else God wanted the people to do before they went on. Look at chapter 5, verse 1. It says, So it was when all the kings of the Amorites who were on the west side of the Jordan and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan from before the children of Israel until we had crossed over, that their heart melted and there was no spirit in them any longer because of the children of Israel. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, Make flint knives for yourself and circumcise the sons of Israel again the second time. Why did God want them to do this? And by the way, when it says the second time, it doesn't mean the same 
men the second time, this, this action again for a second time. Why did God say this? Because circumcision was the sign of the covenant that God had made with Abraham. But these Israelites were not circumcised because during the wilderness wanderings, the nation had been under judgment and therefore circumcision had not been carried out for all that time. Now it needed to be done before the people entered their promised land. Why? What was the significance of this ritual? It was supposed to be a continual reminder to the people that they needed to have their sin cut away from their hearts. It was a physical operation to illustrate a spiritual truth. That is why many times in Hebrew Scripture or the Old Testament, you read, God, you read about God saying to his people, circumcise your hearts. In other words, cut away the sin of your hearts. That's what God wanted them to understand. Their hearts, just like our hearts, were surrounded by sin that needed to be dealt with. Circumcision reminded them of that fact. Verse 7 of chapter 5 says this, Then Joshua circumcised their sons whom he raised up in their place, for they were uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way. So it was when they had finished circumcising all the people that they stayed in their places in the camp till they were healed. So Joshua and all the men obeyed God. And frankly, it was a painful experience. But that's the way obedience is sometimes. There are times when it hurts to obey God. It costs us to obey God. But that's the test to see just how serious and willing we are to obey him. Joshua and his men were willing. So once again, the Lord assured Joshua of his presence. In verse 13, we read this. uh, Verse 13 of chapter 5, it says, And it came to pass when Joshua was by Jericho that he lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, a man stood opposite him with a sword, with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? So he said, No, but as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? Then the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take your sandal off your foot, for the place where you stand is holy, and Joshua did so. This was probably a pre-incarnate appearance of the Lord Jesus himself to assure Joshua that God was with, with him and his people. This was not an angel, because angels don't accept worship. This individual accepted worship. And that is why most commentators suggest this is the pre-incarnate Lord Jesus. And with that, chapter 6 begins the conquest. Notice how it begins, verse 1. Now Jericho was securely shut up because of the children of Israel. None went out, none came in. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand, its king, and the mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city, all you men of war. You shall go around the city once. This you shall do six days. And seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. But the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. It shall come to pass when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, and when you hear the sound of the trumpet, that all the people shall shout with a great shout. Then the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people shall go up every man straight before him. Historical and archaeological evidence indicates that Jericho was the oldest fortified city in the world. 
It wasn't the oldest city in the world. That's not what I said. It was the oldest fortified city in the world. But it was no match for the Lord God. Joshua and his army followed the Lord's instructions exactly, and the walls fell down just like the Lord had said. Down in verse 20, we read this. It says, So the people shouted when the priests blew the trumpets, and it happened when the people heard the sound of the trumpet, and the people shouted with a great shout, that the wall fell down flat, that the people went up into the city. Then the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they took the city. Do you know how the city of Jericho felt after Joshua came through? They were crushed. And that's just to see if you're awake after all the reading. On to chapter 7. Verse 1 says, But the children of Israel committed a trespass regarding the accursed thing. For Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took of the accursed things, so the anger of the Lord burned against the children of Israel. As a result of this, you probably know the story, when Joshua's men went to battle against Ai, or Ai, however you want to pronounce it, they were defeated and driven back. And it wasn't until Joshua had dealt with Achan's sin that God granted them victory again. So in chapter 8, having dealt with Achan and his sin, Joshua and his men went to battle against Ai, and this time they were victorious. And that victory completed their conquest of central Canaan. So Joshua led the people in worship in chapter 8. Look at chapter 8, verse 30. Chapter 8, verse 30 says, Now Joshua built an altar to the Lord God of Israel in Mount Ebal. Mount Ebal is in central Israel, in, in the part that we would call Samaria. Verse 32 says, And there in the presence of the children of Israel he wrote, on the stones, a copy of the law of Moses, which he had written. Then all Israel, with their elders and officers and judges, stood on either side of the ark before the priests, the Levites, who bore the ark of the covenant of the Lord, the stranger, as well as he who was born among them. Half of them were in front of Mount Gerizim, half of them in front of Mount Ebal, as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded before that they should bless the people of, bless the people of Israel. And afterward, he read all the words of the law, the blessings and the cursings, according to all that is written in the book of the law. There was not a word of all that Moses had commanded, which Joshua did not read before all the assembly of Israel, with the women, little ones, and the strangers who were living among them. Now the conquest of southern Canaan begins in chapter 9 and runs through chapter 10. Miraculously, the Lord gave Joshua and his men victory over five Amorite kings who had banded together. Look at chapter 10, verse 9. Joshua therefore came upon them suddenly, having marched all night from Gilgal. By the way, one time I, when I was in Israel, our group took this exact path, as best we could tell, of Joshua and his men marching all night. Let me tell you, they, where they started deep down in the ravine, the, the climb they had to make in the march, these, these men were men. I mean, these were, these were warriors. This is, this is a, we just read this, and if you're not familiar with the geography, you completely miss it. This was an amazing feat. It says, Joshua came before them, having marched all night from Gilgal. So the Lord routed them before Israel, killed them with a great slaughter at Gibeon, chased them along the road that goes to Beit Horon, and struck them down as far as Azekah and Makedah. That is all the way out, almost toward the western part of the land of Israel. And they started at Gilgal, which is down in the, in the Dead Sea Valley. 
And it happened as they fled before Israel or on the descent of Beit Horon that the Lord cast down large hailstones from heaven on them as far as Azekah, and they died. There were more who died from the hailstones than the children of Israel killed with the sword. Then Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord delivered up the Amorites before the children of Israel, and he said in the sight of Israel, Sun, stand still over Gibeon, and moon in the valley of Aijalon. So the sun stood still, and the moon stopped, till the people had revenge upon their enemies. Is this not written in the book of Jasher? So the sun stood still in the midst of heaven, and did not hasten to go down for about a whole day. And there there has been no day like that, before it or after, that the Lord heeded the voice of a man, for the Lord fought for Israel. And again, understanding the geography and all they had gone through to, to just cry out and long for the victory to end or to, to be completed there. It, it makes sense why they, they wanted this so desperately. This was no gimmick or trick. I mean, these men had to have been exhausted and they wanted the, to finish the battle by having the sun stand still. The Lord fought for Israel, and the Lord continued to fight for Israel throughout the rest of this chapter as Joshua and his army carried out a number of rapid-fire raids on key cities in southern Canaan. Down in verse 40, it says, Joshua conquered all the land, the mountain country, and the south, the Negev, and the lowland, and the wilderness slopes, and all their kings. He left none remaining, but utterly destroyed all that breathed as the Lord God of Israel had commanded. And Joshua conquered them from Kadesh Barnea as far as Gaza, and all the country of Goshen, even as far as Gibeon. All these kings and their land Joshua took at one time because the Lord God of Israel fought for Israel. Then Joshua who returned in all Israel with him to the camp at Gilgal. So all that remains now is to conquer northern Canaan, and that takes place in chapters 11 and 12. In fact, these chapters sum up all of the cities and kings that Joshua defeated. You can notice all the kings mentioned in the last several verses of chapter 12. We won't read those, can't pronounce most of their names anyway, but you see the list there at the end of chapter 12. As we come to chapter 13, we come to the second major section of the book. We'll only take a few minutes to cover this because it really only takes a few minutes to summarize it. A huge percentage of the land had been conquered, even though there was still a lot yet to be conquered. But since Joshua was getting old, the Lord instructed him to divide up the land to be inhabited by the children of Israel. Chapter 13, verse 7 says, uh, verse 7 tells us, uh, in verse 6, all the inhabitants of the mountains from Lebanon as far as the brook Misrephoth uh, and all the Sidonians, them I will drive out from before the children of Israel, only divide it by lot to Israel as an inheritance as I have commanded you. Now therefore, divide this land as an inheritance to the nine tribes and half the tribe of Manasseh with the other half tribe of the Reubenites and the Gadites received their inheritance which Moses had given them beyond the Jordan eastward as Moses the servant of the Lord had given them. And this is what I mentioned earlier. Nine and a half tribes inhabited the land on the west side of the Jordan River and two and a half tribes occupied the land on the east side of the Jordan River. So what we have in chapters 14 through 21 are all the specifics of the dividing of the land. The boundaries of the tribes and the cities were all spelled out for the people so there would be no misunderstanding. Once they had all of those details worked out, Joshua gave some final farewell messages to all the tribes. Skip over to chapter 23 near the end of the book. Chapter 23, verse 1. 
Now it came to pass a long time after the Lord had given rest to Israel from all their enemies round about that Joshua was old, advanced in age. And Joshua called for all Israel, for their elders, for their heads, for their judges, for their officers, and said to them, I am old, advanced in age. You have seen all that the Lord your God has done to all these nations because of you. For the Lord your God is he who has fought for you. See, I have divided to you by lot these nations that remain to be an inheritance for your tribes from the Jordan with all the nations that I have cut off as far as the great sea westward. And the Lord your God will expel them from before you and drive them out of your sight so you shall possess their land as the Lord your God promised you. Therefore, be very courageous to keep and to do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses, lest you turn aside from it to the right hand or to the left, and lest you go among these nations, these who remain among you. You shall not make mention of the name of their gods, nor cause anyone to swear by them. You shall not serve them, nor bow down to them, but you shall hold fast to the Lord your God as you have done to this day. Good old Joshua. He knew how easy it would be for the people to stray from the word of God, stray from the Lord their God. And of course, you know Israel's later history that whenever they embraced these gods, they embraced their practices, the heinous things that went along with their religion. So Joshua gave this final charge to all the rulers in verses 1 through 16. Then he gave the same charge to the people in chapter 24. Look at the last chapter, chapter 24. Verse 14, he says, Now therefore fear the Lord, serve him in sincerity and in truth, and put away the gods which your fathers served on the other side of the river and in Egypt. Serve the Lord. And if it seems evil to you to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served that were on the other side of the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. What a tremendous affirmation of devotion to the Lord. And the people followed Joshua's example. Down in verse 16, the people answered and said, Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For the Lord our God is he who brought us and our fathers up out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage who did those great signs in our sight and preserved us in all the way that we went and among all the people through whom we passed. And the Lord drove out from before us all the people, including the Amorites who dwelt in the land. We will serve Yahweh, for he is our God. And that is exactly what they did for quite a while. Down in verse 31, right at the end of the book, it says, Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had known all the works of the Lord which he had done for Israel. I hope that can be said about all of us when we die. They served the Lord. The book of Joshua is a magnificent book. In fact, of the 11 historical books in Hebrew Scripture that trace the geographical and chronological story of Israel all the way from Abraham to Malachi. Joshua is the only one that doesn't record a major failure by Israel or its leadership. When there was sin, like Achan's sin in chapter 7, it was dealt with quickly, it was dealt with properly. So what can we take from our own lives 
from the book of Joshua in addition to what we've already noted throughout this study? I think the answer is this. The book of Joshua teaches us that victory in life and blessing in life from God come as a result of trusting God and obeying Him. It's that basic. As I worked through Joshua and sort of came to the end here and pulled that principle together, I thought of that old song that we sometimes sing, Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. That's the message of the book of Joshua. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your faithfulness to your people. As evidenced in this book, you promised them a land, and you gave them the land. And it's not that you gave that to them without effort. They had to fight, and they had to defeat their enemies. But your, your promise was sure and certain, and your promise was fulfilled. In like manner, we have a battle. The Christian life is often described in the New Testament as a battle. But you have given us magnificent promises, as Peter says, that through them we might become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Exceedingly great and precious promises. That those promises don't mean that we will no longer struggle or fight or have to, have to work for victory in our lives, but your promises are sure and certain. May the book of Joshua encourage us about how you worked with your people Israel and be a reminder to us of how you work with us, your people under the new covenant, those who know and love your son Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.